This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner, a changed David Gardner this week, as I will be spending some time talking about this this particular week. Um, before I get into my main topic, though, I do want to mention how much I enjoyed some of the Olympics. I didn't watch a lot of the Olympics, but I, I maybe it's as much that I enjoyed commentary about the Olympics. For example, there was a great tweet by Bill Murray, the comedian, saying, in effect, you know, every single Olympic event should be required to have one average person who's competing right alongside the athletes, just for context. And I really, really love that that idea. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but brilliant. I did see the end of the soccer for the gold medal, ending once again in a shootout, not the way any sport should ever end, in my opinion. By the way, one of the things we do with The Motley Fool is we top it. So, you can't just criticize. It's not enough just to criticize. You have to have a better idea. So, this idea has been floating around for years now. My good friend here at The Motley Fool, Todd Edder, is the one who kind of shared it with me. It might have some of Todd's stamp on it, but it's basically that when we hit overtime, we just, every three, four, five minutes, pull one player off the field for each of the teams. So, 11 on 11 becomes 10 on 10, becomes 9 on 9. If it keeps going, people are getting exhausted. 8 on 8. Incredibly dramatic and staying within the flow of the real game, not some artificial half-cocked kind of everybody take a shot and whoever hits more at the end of a long, grueling match. Not the way again to end any sport to me, especially for a gold medal, but enough of that. So, in the past week, as I heralded last week, um, I have had a remarkable experience, and that is to be a member of the JCOC. Now, that is an acronym. My week was full of acronyms because it was spent with the military, with the five American U.S. Armed Forces. Uh, JCOC, an acronym for the unwieldy phrase, Joint Civilian Orientation Conference. Now, if if conference makes you think about something that has a keynote speaker and is at a lovely place, maybe let's go with um, Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, for a few days, uh, rubbing elbows with industry people, that is not what this kind of conference is. In fact, the JCOC was held for the 86th time this past week. It's a program that's gone for about 45 years, I believe. It is from the U.S. Department of Defense. It is Ash Carter, the Secretary of Defense. It is his program. And it is there to acquaint civilians, people like me, with the capabilities, culture, history, and present-day operations of the U.S. Armed Forces. As we were reminded throughout the week, we're paying their bills. So, we as taxpayers, uh, we had an incredibly amazing look at the U.S. Armed Forces, all five of them. Again, they are the Air Force, the Army, the Coast Guard, the Marines, and the Navy, in alphabetical order. And over the course of the last week, I was privileged to spend about one full day with each of those. And what I'm going to share with you this week is just going to be the top 10 things that I saw or did uh, in the past week. The truth is, having just got back from this experience, I'm still processing it, so I think I'm going to spend a little time next week and just reflect a little bit more on it with some learnings and some things I hope you and I can take away from the experience that I had, partly on your dollar 
And so I, I'm hoping to pay it back, pay it forward a little bit next week. We'll also do some mailbag next week to preserve the tradition of the mailbag at the end of every month. Uh, but so this is JCOC one. Next week will be JCOC two. Before I start this list of my top ten, starting with number ten, I do want to thank again Ash Carter, the U.S. Secretary of Defense. It is an amazing program. The Department of Defense fully pays for it, and the opportunity that I had with 39 or so other civilians drawn from around the country over the last week was unforgettable and something I'll always be grateful for. I also want to thank the person who really oversees the program, and that is Peter Cook, the Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs. He's also the Pentagon Press Secretary. He has two hats that he wears. Peter was, in fact, a year behind me in high school. He had the misfortune, from my standpoint, of of having graduated from Duke University. But other than that, I really appreciate Peter. And, uh, and the truth is that those two gentlemen and so many other men and women over the last week um, added lots of value to the lives of the 39 or so people who were part of the JCOC. So, without further ado, number 10. Again, the top 10 things that I saw, heard, or did in the past week. Number 10 was we spent one afternoon that first day, Monday, at Quantico, which is a Marine base located right near Washington, D.C. And among other experiences that day, toward the end of the day, we had an opportunity to meet Joe Shusko. Joe is a retired lieutenant colonel of the Marines, I believe. I hope I have these titles right. He is a present-day, as a retired gentleman, present-day instructor for the Marine Corps Martial Arts Program. The acronym, because there are always acronyms in the military, is kind of a fun one. It's MCMAP. So I didn't know, maybe you do. I know we have Marines actually listening to this podcast, so you know much more about this than I do. But I'm here to share it out to all those others who don't know as much about this. Every single Marine is trained in martial arts, it's a six month program. Uh, You're expected to start and get your tan belt. You can go higher from there up to black belt. It is not a specific type of martial art. It mixes. It's mixed martial arts. But every single Marine, male and female, has this experience where they learn martial arts. And to, to have heard from Joe Shusko especially, how he trains the Marines, how he thinks about it, in particular his emphasis not on physicality, but on character, is something that I will always remember. The things that he said. This is a guy who does speak publicly. You could probably invite him to speak to your organization about values, just about core values, because that's something very important to every Marine, but especially within the MCMAP program. It is as much about teaching 14 core values that all Marines think about every day with the help of this program as it is learning karate chops. And Joe Shusko has a book. I'm going to plug it here. I've bought it myself as a consequence of this trip. It's called Tie-Ins for Life, Tie-Ins for Life, because Shusko, as he teaches martial arts, he's teaching character. And as he teaches character, he specifically draws on stories that he's accumulated over the course of his career so that he ties in to every point he makes a story to help these young Marines learn and remember. And as it turns out, this older non-Marine really appreciates how he thinks about life, and I would highly recommend you take a look at that book if this seems something that might be helpful to you. I've already enjoyed reading the first couple chapters of it. So, that was number 10. Just learning about the Marine 
core martial arts program, but then specifically getting to meet and hear from a very animated, classically um, hardcore, but character-driven good guy, Joe Shusko. I think his nickname around the Marines is actually Joe Marine, uh, was definitely a highlight. Number nine. Number nine was the next day. It was Tuesday, August 16th, when I got to do something I've never done my entire life, and that is spend half of a day with the U.S. Coast Guard. You know, a lot of us think right away when we think of armed forces, we think of probably maybe the Army or the Marines or the Navy or the Air Force, depending on who you are. And I know that anybody who's been in any of those enjoys friendly rivalry with the others and would be surprised that I didn't mention them first. The Coast Guard, though, often doesn't get thought of in the same regard. And it's partly because the Coast Guard actually has more of a law enforcement function uh, for, for Americans. They are out there patrolling our coasts. If you're an American, they're keeping you safe, especially if you live near the coast. Frequently, they're just out there pulling people out of the ocean who've fallen out of or sunk in their own boats. So there's a big save lives component uh, for those who serve in the Coast Guard every day. They are, of course, also interdicting drug dealers and all kinds of stuff happening south of Florida, which is where I found myself that particular afternoon. Just being able to learn more about the Coast Guard and and the efforts that they make to keep us safe. Um, out there on a beautiful Coast Guard cutter, it was the Joshua Appleby, an afternoon that had encroaching thunderstorms dramatically playing off behind us as we watched 29 and 45-foot boats go through the motions of showing how they interdict smugglers. Um, was really impressive to me. So, um, congratulations to all those in the Coast Guard. I have more appreciation for you now. And I think, yes, you can stand shoulder to shoulder with any of the other four armed services. I also had a really wonderful conversation with the Vice Admiral of the Coast Guard back up here in Washington, D.C., uh, Sandra Stowe's. Sandy spent a lunch with a small group of us. And uh, what an intelligent and charming leader the Coast Guard has in Sandy Stowe's. Number eight. Number eight was getting to be up close to an F-35. Now, the F-35 is the latest, greatest, single-seat, single-engine, stealth fighter jet, strike jet, I think I have some of my terms right here, that, uh, that is being deployed and tested right now by both the Air Force and the Navy. And this is a very expensive plane. Each one of these planes costs about $100 million of your and my money if you're a U.S. taxpayer. And the overall program costs about $1.5 trillion. That's estimated through the year 2070. So, this is really the newest stuff um, and something that'll be around for a long time as these programs tend to last. And just being up close to one was a real highlight. Um, they're smaller than I thought. It is just for a single pilot, uh, but these are these are jets that play many different roles. And while I didn't have an opportunity to ride in this particular aircraft, I'll be mentioning a bit later some of the others I did get to ride in. Um, I was highly enamored of it, and clearly, both the Air Force and the Navy are really excited about this aircraft. It was cool to see the F-35 Lightning II. I think that's the official name that Lockheed Martin has put on this jet out there. And uh, I'll mention again a little later one other experience I had with it. And before we go on to the next one, let's talk rocket. That kind of fits into this week's podcast a little bit. If you've tried to get a mortgage, you know how frustrating the process is, how you seem to spend hours and hours sometimes on the paperwork. 
Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. It's fast, powerful, and completely online. Rocket Mortgage lets you easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. It's a quick online process that you can manage right from your couch. So, if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. Okay, that brings me up to number seven. Now, number seven is about guns. I realize there are lots of people listening right now who have very different feelings about guns. Some of us wish that there were no guns in the world. And some of us believe that being able to carry a gun is a fundamental human right. Um, just so you know, I'm kind of in between where you all are. Um, I am not anti-gun at all. I recognize, certainly, that they have really important roles to play, both in the military, which is where I was last week, and uh, and for our law enforcement officers. At the same time, I recognize that lots of horrendous things have happened because of guns. We're seeing it every day in this country. We know that you'll hear stats like a gun in a house is 80 times more likely to be used on someone in that house than on any intruder. Uh, and of course, unfortunately, crazy people get a hold of guns and do really bad things and have in highly publicized ways in the United States of America for the last decade plus. So, my experience of guns probably came down to summer camp about 40 years ago in Maine, where I lay down on the ground. I don't think I really ever got up from the prone position. I wasn't particularly good firing a gun. If you were good back in those days at summer camp, and I'm sure some of you know this, you'd start in a prone position, then you'd eventually get up to a kneeling or sitting position, and then up to a standing position if you were a good marksman. I was never particularly one, and I, I, I'm not a hunter. I haven't spent much time with guns in the past. However, having the opportunity to fire an M16 at the Marine Quantico base, or with the Army at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, an M4A1 and MP5, the submachine gun on automatic Glock pistol, and just shooting at targets, sometimes 100 or plus yards distant, where it's not paper targets like it was at summer camp, it's dummies that when you hit them, they flip down and then slowly lurch back up letting you know that you got a hit. Um, I enjoyed it. It was an enjoyable experience, just like any sport for me. And I will note that the improvements in technology that now give you a red laser dot through your sight, boy, does that make me a better marksman than I would be otherwise. So, I'm one of those video gamers who's played any number of games where I'm shooting guns. Uh, this time, I was doing it for real, seeing how they train and learning about that. I walked away neither particularly pro-gun nor particularly anti-gun, probably slightly more pro-gun than I had been before, um, but really under this understanding that guns used in the military make a huge amount of sense, and we want the best ones we can. Guns used by law enforcement, same thing from my standpoint, although I much prefer when tasers are used by law enforcement, which is why one of our Rule Breaker stock picks, it's done pretty well recently, is Taser. By the way, Taser's done pretty well, not because of Tasers per se, but because of body cameras, which has been an important and growing market, and for good reason here in the United States of America. No sermons here as I close number seven. I think at the end of the day, for gun control, we really need to make sure that we are enforcing, when people buy a gun, that we're enforcing who really can do it 
and what they're allowed to buy. When that's really done well, it becomes just like other things that are done well in our society, like who has a driver's license and who doesn't. I think, from that standpoint, I understand people who appreciate their guns, retired military, who want to be hunters. Uh, I'm not one of them. I'm not going to be that person. But um, anyway, I, I emerged with somewhat of a more balanced view than probably I went in with. Okay, number six. Number six was that on Thursday of last week, I had the opportunity to spend a full day at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And this was with the Army Special Forces. So the U.S. Army has many capabilities. We saw on display, we, our day kicked off after a briefing from General Tovo, who oversees the United States of America's Special Operations Command. Um, we were escorted outside to stand in the square just outside that, that central Fort Bragg building, and we saw members of the Black Daggers Army paratroopers drop down right in front of us with perfect landings. Uh, but really what jumps out to me most of all that day was an opportunity to watch U.S. Special Forces practice and train um, the equivalent of assaulting a building if there were a terrorist in that building. Seeing how they land, this was all real life here in a Black Hawk helicopter. This was a demo that included real bullets and real bombs. Um, and land on the building, drop off the guys, and this 12-man team, and yes, they pretty much are all men, although now women are allowed in, and are, it's been opened up so that women can try out and become part of Special Forces. I don't think anybody has yet, but I'm sure that burial will be broken at some point. Anyway, these guys, each of whom has a specialist role in this 12-man team, but cross-trained so that they're all capable of doing um, medical procedures, um, to see how they do what they do. Um, if you've seen the movie Zero Dark Thirty about the Bin Laden takedown, you know how these guys operate and what it sounds like and what it looks like. The only difference between what we saw that afternoon, they told us, and real life is that it was being done in the afternoon. So the Black Hawk helicopter pilot would normally be using night vision and it would all be done in under the stealth of darkness. But um, in this case, we were able to watch it in the light of day and, uh, and to hear how they communicate with each other and the work that they do. And they simulated one casualty, a guy who needed a tourniquet. He was not killed. He was just um, badly damaged. Uh, they actually had, uh, again, a real Army Special Forces guy um, have an IV put in him, bleeding. So it was all real. It was simulated, but, but very real for him. And, uh, and, it, and it was amazing to watch that. And, and as well, an urban assault where we stood up above a facility looking down on rooms, kind of a top-down view. Again, I can't help but think of video games. It's like you're playing the video game of a top-down view of a building, watching special forces move through it. Again, this was with live ammo and real bombs, so that's why we were up above it. And had to be off to the left, not the right, for one particular room, so we didn't get hit by shrapnel. Um, but seeing the work that those people do, um, for them, not every day, but um, often multiple times over the course of their military deployment, uh, was eye-opening. And uh, something that is really, truly, I think, um, keeping us safe in the United States of America every day in ways that we don't even fully know or can appreciate. So, um, I'm going to be mentioning at the end a conversation I had with one Special Forces soldier to give an example of that. But suffice it to say that that was number six. Number five. Number five are just the different briefings that we got from leaders, starting the very first night of the JCOC program, when we had the second highest ranking military officer, General Selva, who is the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, 
And I really appreciated what General Salva told us that night. He said, over the course of your next week, it's going to be very special for all of you. You're going to remember it your whole lives. Please don't make this mistake. Don't talk to people like me. Don't talk to the leaders. Don't talk to the generals. I mean, you can. We're going to talk to you. But make sure you spend some time with the very newest, freshest, lowest-ranking recruits and soldiers and people in the military. Make sure you have conversations with them about where they came from, why they joined. And that sense of humility and that sense of servant leadership, which was very real that night as General Selva briefed us, I saw throughout the week. I heard it from leaders of each of the armed services that we went through. We did get to hear from them, though, and that's why I'm making this my number five, because hearing from General Selva, or how about General Votel, who runs Central Command in Tampa, Florida, some of you will know, some of you work at Central Command in Tampa, Florida, but many of us, if you're like me, didn't even know what that was. Um, in the United States of America, we've divided up the world into different commands, and Central Command oversees 20 countries, largely in the Middle East, some of the most troubled countries in the world. So, all of the strategy, tactics, logistics, decisions, um, deployments are decided in Tampa, Florida at Central Command. We got to hear from the leader there, uh, General Votel, who personally, I, I think, humbly spent some time. 90 minutes with us, greeting us outside with a handshake first, and then coming inside and sharing a PowerPoint that he'd done, talking about the history of the Central Command and what he does and how he thinks about it, and then answering graciously, answering our questions. We also heard from General Tovo in Fort Bragg. He oversees U.S. Special Operations Command. Um, and heck, I mentioned earlier, lunch with the Vice Admiral, Vice Admiral Sandoz of the, of the Coast Guard. This, these were really unique opportunities. Somebody like me has never had any of those conversations or an opportunity to meet any of those people. And to think that at pretty much at its highest ranks, we had that kind of exposure to uh, real leaders in the American military is something that I treasure. Number four, and now for something completely different. So, one of the things that the Air Force does at Eglin Air Force Base, just outside Pensacola, Florida, right along the Florida Panhandle, about as far west as you can be and still be in Florida. In fact, I wasn't even realizing that in Florida there is a one-hour time change. I thought, that happens? We flew all week long. We flew from one airbase to another. I just didn't expect that as we flew west in Florida, we would lose an hour. But right there were we at Eglin Air Force Base. And among many amazing sights, I mentioned earlier the F-35 or I tweeted out a photo of me holding an albino python. Um, I also had the opportunity to go in the McKinley Climatic Laboratory. Now, this is a unique space. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you ever have a chance to go and visit it, and I'm saying this honestly not even knowing if casual tourists like you and me can do that, but if you can, I would highly recommend it. From the 90-degree day that seemed to be true of every single day of the week that we spent, JCOC 86, August 2016, every day, seemingly 90 plus degrees, just one step inside a fully controlled climate for training purposes and testing purposes. So that day in the McKinley Climatic Laboratory, it was 20 degrees below zero. Snow, ice conditions all around. Again, just 10 feet on the other side, 90 degrees. And it was an amazing experience. Uh, the, the laboratory was designed in order to test under real-world conditions. I believe I heard from the leader of the laboratory that they can crank it up as high as 165 degrees Fahrenheit of heat, and as low as, well, there's no known lowest level. I think they've taken it down to minus 85 before. 
this was obviously developed in order to test real equipment under these conditions, because it's one thing if the designer or manufacturer tells you it works in 20 degrees below zero. It's an entirely other thing to actually make sure that it does work in 20 degrees below zero. That day, it had been rented out to Goodyear. Goodyear was testing rubber tires under those conditions. Just a really cool place, and an example of one of those sites I would never otherwise have had, and I feel obligated to share with you this week, because it was very memorable. All right, we're down to our final three. Number three. Number three is the aircraft that I got to ride in, JCOC-86. So, the C-17, first of all, a very large plane. It's green, and it's really big. It's it's as big as any commercial jet you'll see. I think it might even be bigger. And it was that C-17 that ferried us around from one airbase to the next each morning. We would wake up around 5 a.m., which is approximately three hours than I like to wake up each morning. Every morning, we're up at 5 a.m., and then we're off to get to the airbase to fly to the next military base. The C-17 was our friend. It can carry three tanks fully inside it. They had cleared it out empty, put in, because it's modular. You can kind of put in anything you want. They put in two Jiffy Johns and 40 seats, kind of low quality theatrical seating, but gave us the experience of riding the C 17. Each of us over the course of the week was invited up to the cockpit to see what that looked like and talk to the pilots up there. Uh, and really, the interstitial conversations we had with things like pilots and soldiers throughout the week, as, I, as I've mentioned, and as I will be mentioning at end, was really what made it special. But the C-17 was our friend. I also got to ride an Osprey, Osprey 22. That's the helicopter that carries the president around Washington, D.C. and other places. Those of us who live in the D.C. area will see the Osprey up there. That was a really cool experience from the Quantico base with the Marines. And third, I'll mention... Yeah, the second most interesting aircraft I was in, and that was a Black Hawk helicopter. So we were taken uh, around Fort Bragg in a Black Hawk helicopter, and um, I had the experience. This was what a nitwit I was. So I boarded the Black Hawk, which will will seat about eight to ten people in it, and I had a cup of water in one hand and my iPhone in the other, and I was like, I'm going to take a cool, and I got some cool iPhone clips this week. I'm going to take a cool iPhone clip of me. In this three-minute ride in the Black Hawk helicopter, as it took off, the first five seconds or so, it looked kind of cinematic. My video looks awesome as we kind of pull away and people are waving at us down below. And then the pounding starts. The rotors up above my head. I was sitting right on the edge, so I'm sitting right next to the air. These helicopters are only going up about 500 or 600 feet, at least on the trip we took, because that's what they do. They go low along the forest, and they drop off soldiers in key areas for um, extraction sometimes. So, in my case, within about five or six seconds, I realized, what am I doing with a cup of water that I was thinking of holding? And So, I quickly dropped that into my lap and no longer cared about it, and then with both hands holding on for dear life, I held on to my iPhone as I did fully take this three-minute video. But within about 30 seconds, I've never seen my iPhone do this before, the video itself starts undulating. And I'm not really sure still to this day physically why it looks like that, but as I hold it out the helicopter looking over the forests of Fort Bragg, the whole thing is just shaking like waves. And I think it had something to do with the rotor blades pounding down on me. Anyway, suffice to say, I'm really glad I was not such a noob that I dropped, which I thought I would, my iPhone somewhere in the forest and mentioned, could we go back for it at some point? But uh, that was an intense, intense ride in a Black Hawk helicopter. And then finally, my favorite ride here as we close at number three, 
had to have been in what is known as the C2 Greyhound. I didn't know it that way. Everybody around the Navy was calling it a COD, which I believe stands for the purpose, the mission that these run, which is carrier onboard delivery. I can't tell you too much about that, like a lot of other military acronyms, but what I can tell you is that this is the plane that took us from the Norfolk Naval Base to an aircraft carrier. Now, a lot of people who've been aboard an aircraft carrier, and I bet you have, I hadn't, I bet you have, but I had never, you can do it. You can just, sometimes when they're at port, especially, you can just go visit it, Norfolk or maybe San Diego or any one of these ports. But I'd never done this. A lot of people will say, you know, it's much larger than you could ever imagine. You can't possibly capture, people would say, in high-definition high television even, or your iPhone picture, just what an aircraft carrier looks like. Then other people will say, these things are actually smaller than you would think. And after having had the experience, I can tell you I'm more in the latter camp. So I've been aboard some really big cruise ships. This aircraft carrier, I don't feel like is particularly bigger. It might even be smaller than some of the largest cruise ships. Um, the USS George Washington, which is what I was aboard in the Atlantic Ocean, goes about three football fields in length. So it's just over a thousand feet long. Anyway, picture any plane that you're on stopping after 1,000 feet. So that's what it's actually like to ride in the C2 Greyhound, literally. As the plane touches down the aircraft carrier and a hook pops up, and the pilot hopes to be able to hook the plane to stop it, you are going from 145 miles an hour to zero in two seconds. I wasn't fully prepared for that. I didn't realize that's how things worked. Humorously, our pilot actually missed the hook the first time through, but we didn't fully know because here's the experience of being on this cod, on this Greyhound. There are no windows. So you're sitting there in your seat and you're simply wondering, wow, when are we going to touch down? When is that two seconds going to happen when it goes from 145 to zero? If you've never had that experience, I hadn't. I, I would personally prefer to be able to look out a window and know when it's about to happen, but you don't. And so as we first touched down, I thought we'd done it because the guys on board with us, the Navy guys, were signaling we're just about to land and we felt kind of a, a hitch and then it all kind of ended. I literally didn't know if we were still moving forward or not, and I thought, wow, was that it? That was a lot easier than I thought it would be. But as it turns out, we had missed the hook. We needed to go spend about five minutes circling back around. It's not always easy to hit these hooks with um, the aircraft carrier listing left and listing right, different tidal conditions and different wind. So we came down, and that second time, by Jove, I knew we had hit it. Because the two seconds of going from 145 to zero are as intense as anything I've ever felt. Yes, I've been, I don't know, mission space at Disney in Florida. There's a little bit of that feeling. Um, what was fun was also the reverse of that. As we left that day, we were shot, catapulted off the carrier, 0 to 145 in two seconds as well. Anyway, that all of those aircraft experiences were memorable and a very special part of the week. Okay, I realize we're running long this week. I have my final two. Um, so many amazing things happened, I guess I felt a need to try to cover as much as I could. Number two, I just want to mention how special it was, the people that I got to spend the time with. I've already mentioned some of the high leadership. I will mention shortly some of the lower levels of the military and conversations I had. But in particular, this, this program brings together people from all walks of life. So I was part of Team Air Force. We were eight people. We'd all been nominated by the Air Force. And so, when asked what my favorite armed service was on a promotional video for the Department of Defense, I, of course, said the Air Force. 
Uh, my father actually went through the Navy. I did have a great-grandfather who was a three-star general in the Army. But I said Air Force because Air Force is what made it possible for me to be there. And also on my Air Force team was the CEO of Vanguard, one of our very favorite companies, uh, the incredibly great mutual fund company. Uh, we had the commissioner of the Big 12 Athletic Conference. Uh, we had um, an AT&T executive. We had the dean of a University of Tennessee business school. We had the dean of the UNC Go Tar Heels Medical School. Um, we had a film and TV producer. This was just my little team of eight. And if you think about the other four teams, where we had uh, I don't know, the head of marketing for the San Diego Chargers, I became a little bit more of a Chargers fan. Um, people from all walks of life. It was amazing to think back on this time. It just reminds me, what I'm trying to convey to you is, the more time that we can spend with really quality people, especially if we can find excuses to spend time with those people when they're not from our industry, when they're from something totally different. Um, I would have paid quite a bit of money just to spend the time that I did with the group of people I did, regardless of what we were doing over the course of a week. But it was a huge, huge benefit to have that shared memory with that group of people and to have made some new friends, I think, uh, for the long term. So, that was definitely highlight number two for me. And I'll close it out then with highlight number one. I've already alluded to it a few times, this podcast, and that brings me to number one. Now, number one, I've already alluded to a few times earlier. That's just the opportunity for conversations with the troops, with people who are serving you and me, if you're a United States citizen, in all kinds of ways. They're engineers, they're doing maintenance, and yes, they're out there in the field sometimes getting shot at. Um, it is remarkable, um, the service that I got to see. And having heard from even some of the very high up people in the military, for example, Phil Davidson, who is in charge of Fleet Forces Command, basically one of the heads of the Navy, um, who gave us a wonderful briefing and uh, a delightful light hors d'oeuvres cocktail hour at his house in Norfolk, Virginia, we heard consistently from people, you know, I spend all my time in the Navy or the Army, but what we got to see last week, thanks to the JCOC program was really a cross-section. We got to go to every one of them and see what they were all doing. And that's part of what made it so special. But it was those conversations with troops of all different types that I remember. In particular, I want to just highlight three as we close, each a brief one. The first one, just a guy, a Coast Guard captain, who uh, presumably lives in Washington, D.C., because he was there at our briefing the first night. And he kind of hung out after the briefing as some of us were just getting to know each other as uh, fellow participants in the JCOC, interacting with some soldiers and staff. Handsome guy, just kind of hanging out on the periphery, and I broke up a conversation because it looked like he wanted to talk to me. And he came up to me, I'll just name him as Howard, and Howard said to me, um, thank you so much for The Motley Fool. And I said, well, you're very welcome. The Motley Fool is very motley. I'm not going to take personal credit for what for what our company tries to do every day um, over the years. Uh, the 23 years we've been in business, we've had any number of writers, community members, advice givers. It's a very motley thing, I said to him, and he understood that as a longtime member. But a very polished guy who then begins to tell me that at the age of 18, his parents didn't really have any money. They'd never taught him anything about money. He was living out of a trailer at the time. And again, this is a polished guy, more senior guy in uniform. And I thought, wow, that's, that's remarkable. I'm never quite 
sure of what influence we have as a company. I can't tell how many people know The Motley Fool or don't. I am glad to say we've been an answer sometimes on Jeopardy, which always makes me feel good. In fact, I think we've been an answer three times in Jeopardy. No one has yet gotten buzzed out for not getting it. So that that that's always made me feel a little bit good as an entrepreneur. But Howard, thank you for your words that night. I remember them. And thank you to other members of the armed forces who came up to me at some point and said, hey, I'm a fool or I read your book. Uh, that means a lot to me. A second conversation I want to mention was with a 26-year-old. I think he was 26. It was aboard the USS George Washington. This is a young guy who said, let me tell you my story a little bit. He went on to say, I was a freshman in college. My parents were scraping together money. Uh, they didn't have enough, so I was on student loans. And I partied my whole freshman first term, and I flunked out. They kicked me out. I got the email. I got the letter. I'm done, which was a shock. Although not so much of a shock, he said, since he clearly knew he hadn't been studying. He didn't really have much recourse at that point. His parents didn't really have any money. And he, in fact, needed to call off his student loans. He needed to quickly let his lender know, please don't put me on the hook for these, because I'm no longer allowed to go to this university. And so, what he decided to do was to go into the U.S. military. He said he chose the Navy because, quotes, I didn't want to be shot at, he said, which I can certainly understand. But within a few years, he began training as an engineer, and today, he is in charge of a portion of the nuclear reactor aboard the USS George Washington. All of the Navy's aircraft carriers are nuclear-powered. And he said at lunch, just in a low-key way that day, a year or so ago, when he first took over this role, he thought he was pinching himself as he lay in bed at night and thought, wow, here I am on an aircraft carrier with 5,000 other people aboard, and I've become the guy who's an engineer overseeing a portion of the nuclear reactor. And my reflection on that, beyond just the kind of American dream aspect of that story, is it's very evident if you see the armed services how young the people are, for the most part, who are there. Not everybody's young. Some people do come to the armed services a little bit later, but really you're seeing, in many cases, fresh young faces with serious responsibilities, real-world responsibilities. And considering how well things go right most of the time, it's inspiring. And the final story I want to tell was with a U.S. Special Forces officer the day that I was in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I'll just call him Kent. Kent was, to me, he looked like the perfect All-American. Very handsome guy, very accomplished, clearly senior there, special forces. He deployed any number of times in scary places like Iraq over the course of the last 15 years of his career. Very charismatic guy. I decided I wanted to approach him after some of the demos that we saw and just ask him a little bit about himself. It wasn't until about minute 12 of the conversation that he just let out, and I have no left leg. And I said, I'm sorry, excuse me? He said, um, yeah, it's a, I, I'm wearing a prosthetic leg. I said, you're serious? He said, yes. In Iraq in 2007, I was shot four times in the leg. It was amputated, and I've been on a prosthetic leg ever since. And I found out a little bit more that he, he deployed three times in really dangerous circumstances with the Special Forces with his prosthetic leg. And I thought, you know, as much as I like to lionize CEO heroes, people like Reed Hastings, Steve Jobs... Howard Schultz, Jeff Bezos, these are people who I who are real world heroes for me who've made me and many other investors very, very happy through long term performance, delivering everyday great products and services that each of us enjoys and benefits from, or at least many of us do. Um, clearly, 
in my mind, there's a different level of heroism that I got to see last week. And as I closed up my conversation with Kent, he actually got misty-eyed in a way I didn't quite understand and still am not quite clear about. But he was describing how traditionally the special forces, the Army, the Army Rangers, they draw off of people who have already been in the military for a few years and think, you know, maybe I could do that. Maybe I've got the right stuff in this highly selective unit. Maybe I could be part of that. And so they try out, and a small minority of them actually make it. But for the first time, I think last year, Kent mentioned that there was a new program where anybody off the street, you or me, could go in and apply to be and try out to be U.S. Special Forces. And he said, and this is where he got misty-eyed, that he'd been there that day, and walking in off the street was a former NFL football player, was a neurologist. He listed a few other occupations of people. I think what he was thinking was that these are incredibly impressive people who are walking away, potentially, from really impressive callings in order to hope to dream to join the unit that he'd served on in the last 14 years. And I guess that's why he got emotional. Sometimes we can't fully explain why we're crying. But for me, that day, to have talked and had that conversation, I'll remember that one a long time. I hope, as I close up, that I shared with you some of the memories that I have that I'll retain for a long time. An incredibly epic week where I saw from the very big to the very small uh, people, very highly ranked to very lowly ranked, people who every day are putting it out there for you and for me in ways that we can't fully recognize or appreciate. Oh, and I want to mention a number of the experiences I shared with you today. I took some pictures of and shared out through my Twitter. So I'm at David G. Fool on Twitter if you want to see illustrations of some of the things that I saw, including me holding the albino python. So, in closing, that was one amazing week. It's a great program. It's a nominations-only program. Some kind or thoughtful person in the U.S. Air Force nominated me, and thank you very much, sir or ma'am, whoever did that. And let me just preview for you where we're going to go next week. So, this is an investing podcast the vast majority of the time, but sometimes I like to share life experiences like the one I had last week, and I'm still processing it, as I mentioned. Next week, I'm going to bring a few lessons and learnings from it to close it out. I'm also going to do mailbags, so I'd love to hear from you, maybe especially if you have any reflections on what what you heard this week. I'll try to address that next week. And then the week after, we'll be back to, I'll be picking five new stocks and doing a redux. About a year ago, I made my first pick of five stocks in a podcast, holding myself accountable, putting them on my caps page. We'll review how those did as well. So, sort of back to normal as we start September. In the meantime, I hope your August closes out very foolishly. Fool on! As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com. 